figured I'd just start off by telling you how good God is, um, as if you didn't know already. Uh, he's pretty good. And so, as I come today, I had a little bit of warning uh, that I might be up here today, although that wasn't the original plan. Um, Pastor Pat's voice started to go out last week, if you all recall, last Sunday. And so, about midweek, I was like, well, this may be a more distinct possibility. And Pat had asked me a while back, or asked slash strongly advised me to, to have a back pocket sermon ready in case a situation arose where something last minute came up and I needed to be in the pulpit. And so uh, the reason I say God is good is he completely lined these things up because what I had been working on was a sermon on love, which happens to be what our Advent focus is for the day. And so it aligns quite well um, because God does those types of things. Um, and so uh, I'm excited for it. Um, God is definitely in the business uh, of planning, uh, and he orchestrated all of those things to line up the way that he wanted. So uh, I'm excited for that. I think, um, Pat, hopefully giving today off helps you recover well. So that'll be the goal. All right, we'll get you back up here next week. Um, and so this morning we're going to look in John chapter 13. So I want to ask you to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. If you didn't, well... I was like, there was a cheat sheet up there, wasn't there? You already knew. All right. So we're going to be in John chapter 13. Um, and while you turn there, I want to kind of set the stage for us, all right? And so, uh, and then we'll read the passage. And so Jesus has 12 disciples that he has trained uh, faithfully and loved on for three years. <clears throat> They've seen him heal the lame and the blind. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him calm the storm. They've heard his teaching. They've observed his prayers and his relationship with the Father. They've seen it all. And whatever happened over those three years, the disciples were witnesses. And now, they're at the table at the Last Supper. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet, even the feet of Judas. Jesus has then warned them that one of them will betray him. And Judas has since gotten up and left the room. And see, Jesus knows that his time is coming. It's his last night before he's to be crucified. And he's carrying a heavy burden on his shoulders. He doesn't have much time left, and they don't realize that yet, but he does. And so since Jesus knows his time is coming, he's choosing to share with the disciples things that are of utmost importance. And so this conversation that we're about to read occurs at the table where they held the Last Supper the night before Jesus died. I've heard it said that last words are lasting words. And I believe that Jesus would want these words to be lasting words. And so let's read this passage together in John chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 31. <clears throat> when he had gone out, he meaning Judas, he just left. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray this morning that your word does what it's here for, Lord, that it, it pierces the heart, God, that it reminds us of your goodness and your greatness and your glory, and Lord, that, um, God, the next however many minutes we share together, God, is all about you and nothing else, God. I pray that your word is spoken and your word alone. We thank you and praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we're going to spend the remaining time we have uh, together diving headfirst into verses 34 and 35 about this new commandment. And so Jesus tells them, um, and, and by the way, we're not going to ignore the other verses. We'll kind of touch on them throughout with some of these points, okay? But uh, we're going to spend our time really focusing in on this new commandment. And so it's kind of a renewed commandment, right? It's like uh, an old book, but in a new edition, all right? It's kind of, kind of like that. It's not like it's brand new. They've heard the command before to love others, to love people. They've heard these commands. They've, they've been taught these, um, and, and they have this idea. And so um, he takes this previous command, and he presents it in a new way. And it's a command that's both excellent and everlasting. You see, the command is to love. So what in the world does that mean? When we hear the word love, I would guess a lot of different things come to mind for many of us. Uh, Many of those thoughts probably revolve uh, around physical intimacy or attraction. In all reality, uh, that's one of the main ways that the world uses the word love, which usually is a temporary satisfaction in some way. A love based on feelings and circumstances. Uh, With this definition, you can fall in and out of love. It's an imperfect kind of love that can waver, and it wavers because it's circumstantial. The love in this passage isn't those things. If God's love were based on circumstances, um, I don't think either you or me would stand a chance. It speaks of a love that is constant and a love that is unchanging. I would also submit to you that the world uses love, uh, the word love, uh, rather flippantly in a lot of ways, right? Just uh, I love everything, right? I love this, I love that. Um, you know, it, it, I, to quote uh, <laughs> uh, an amazing scholar from the movie The Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And, uh, and, and I say that because, you know, we use that word flippantly all the time. Like, if I say I love macaroni, uh, which I do, mac and cheese is delicious, all right? If I say I love macaroni, uh, what I'm saying is, this is one of my favorite things. And I like to have it sometimes, but not all the time. If I said I love Jesus and I use that same meaning, I'd be saying, Jesus is one of my favorites, but I only want him sometimes and not all of the time. That can't be. We can't use the word love so flippantly. And so let's be sure as we read this passage uh, that we aren't using a worldly definition of love to interpret this scripture but a biblical definition of love to interpret this scripture. And the love this passage speaks of is that agape love. It's a sacrificial love based on God's character, not your or my attributes or actions. It's a love that's given regardless. Sorry. It's a love that's given regardless, and it's given without requiring anything in return. Praise God for that. He constantly gives it to us, even though there is very little we can offer back. It's an unconditional love requiring nothing in return. It's this type of love that Jesus shows in his interactions with the disciples. 
And so he gives this command to love, and he refers to it as a new commandment. This is interesting. If you go back to the book of Leviticus and several other times throughout the, the Old Testament, you'll find a command to love. Um, and I'm sure all of us in the room have heard the command to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So how is this command new? We're going to unpack that. All right, that's the first place we're going to start. How is this a new commandment? There's two phrases in this, this scripture that I really want to dive into today. One is the, the idea that it's a new commandment, and the other is the idea that we're called to love as Jesus loved us. And so we're going to dive into those two phrases specifically. So how is this a new commandment? And I want to try to explain this as best I can. Here's the first way it's new, okay? The recipient of the commandment is different. And so previously, uh, the command was always love your neighbor as yourself, or, or whatever the case is. And here, it's one another. See, there, there, there's, a, there, there's a reason why the word change. Previously, the command was to love, to love your neighbor just meant to love others, to love anyone, to love those who are different than you, which is still commanded of us, by the way. But that's not what's being spoken of in this passage. And so when it says one another, it's talking about a, a specific group of people. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples, to 11 of his disciples, because Judas is, had already left the room. And so this command, since he's giving it to the 11 disciples to love one another, is for us, is the call for us to love other believers. It's the call for us to love other followers of Jesus. And in this group of 11, there were fishermen, a hated tax collector, people from different places, people of different skin tones, people of different ages, people who were naturally hated and enemies, people who were biological siblings, um, people who came from different socioeconomic levels. There was a wider range of people in this group, this first group of believers. And he's saying none of those things should stop you from loving one another. That's amazing considering the things that we let get in the way in the world we live in. The use of one another in this passage is really setting apart a new group of people, the followers of Jesus, or as it would be called a short time later, the church. This is really giving this, this heads up, this new group of people that will be called the church in a short period of time. So the recipient is different. Previously it was to love your neighbor, now it's to love one another. So you and I, we're called to love other believers in Christ. <clears throat> The second way this is a new commandment uh, is that the expectation uh, or the response of the recipient is different. And here's why uh, I worded this the way I did. It said previously one-sided, now new, the new command is mutual. Um, the previous command was to love others. That didn't require them to love back. Did you catch that? It's a one-sided kind of love. We're called to love people, whether they love us back or not. In this command, to love one another, the idea here is that that love between you and I as followers of Jesus is mutual. I should be loving you, you should be loving me in return. And so that's a big difference from before. It was always one-sided. You're called to love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say only if they love you in return. They could hate you, they could really dislike us, but we're still called to love them. For, for us as believers, this response from, uh, from one another is different. We're called to love one another. It goes both ways. It's reciprocated, right? Between the two of us, it's mutual. One of the things that's interesting in this passage is the phrase love one another is found three times in these two verses. 
And if you know too much uh, about this, the number three in Scripture uh, is, is a number that speaks to completeness. And so it's in here three times, it speaks to completeness. And so our love for one another is to be a complete type of love, not lacking in any way. The way that we love one another within the church as part of the body. Here's the hard part of this. Not only do we need to love one another as believers and followers of Jesus, we got to be willing to receive love from one another. Sometimes that's harder. Right? It's harder to let somebody love on you sometimes. I would submit to you that this call right here and this command is to allow that to happen. Allow your fellow believers to love you. Be willing to receive that love as well. Sometimes others want to love on us and we don't let them because we have a fear that it shows weakness or a fear of, of whatever the case is, that it makes us look less than we are or look bad or whatever. And yet, I've heard it many times, you know, we're really taking away from what God's calling them to do and not allowing them to do what God has called them. We're commanded to love one another, and so allow yourself to receive it, all right? One another, it's mutual. And here's the last part about how it's different, all right? Here's the third one. The previous command, uh, it's the how is what's different. As yourself versus as Jesus loved them. Those are two different things. Because even when we love others as ourselves, we still have limits, all right? Because even when we... When we love others as ourselves, we still don't really love them as ourselves because we still value our own lives in general more than others. There's still limits. We restrain ourselves in some ways. That said, to love your neighbor as yourself is an extremely high standard. And operating under the assumption that operates under the assumption that we love ourselves well and we take care of ourselves, which is a whole other sermon for a whole other day about whether we love ourselves or not. But see, this command... This command to love as Jesus loved raises the bar even higher. To love as Jesus loved them. 1 John 4.8 tells us that God is love. And so the Bible uh, also tells us that Jesus was God in the flesh. And so Jesus was literally the physical embodiment of love. And so love himself gave the disciples a command to love. I, I don't think you can get a better source than that. He is literally the authority on love because that's literally who he is. So if you want to know how to love someone, that's where you need to go. And so here, the how is different. We're called to love as Jesus loves. What's interesting here, uh, at least something that stuck out to me anyway, is that Jesus doesn't give them a list of ways to do it. Do you notice that? When he says to love one another, he says, as I've loved you, he doesn't say love one another. And this is what it looks like. He counts on their personal experience. Did y'all catch that? He counts on their personal experience with him. Say, hey, think about how I've loved you. So take a minute and think about it, is what he's calling the disciples to do in this moment, to reflect on the last three years of time that they've spent together and how they've experienced the love of Jesus in that time. Jesus was counting on that. So for each of us, the question would be, how have you experienced God's love? And then, do you love fellow believers in the same way? Do I love fellow believers in the same way? See, Jesus doesn't give them a list. He speaks to that personal experience. That said, I want to offer a reminder to us today of how amazing God's love is and how different God's love is. Because let's be honest, the world, 
the love the world speaks of pales in comparison to the love that we've been shown by Christ. It's not even close. His love's different, and his love blows us away. And so when it says to love as Jesus loves, the question becomes, how did Jesus love them? And so I want to look into this. There are so many aspects and elements involved in the way Jesus loved his disciples that, you know, it would take us, I don't even know when we leave, all right? Um, we may be here tomorrow, we may be here till next week, I don't know. Uh, it would take us forever. So I'm going to dive into just a few specific ones, okay? Um, so how did Jesus love them? If this command is to love one another, for you and I as believers to love one another as Jesus did, what does that look like? So here's the first part. How did he love them? He loved them sacrificially uh, by giving his life. And I know uh, I appreciated what was read um, uh, by the Lambs for Advent because it really, it really already hit on that, that sacrifice and the way that he did it. And here's the cool thing. This is where we tie back in the other verses. Look at the verses right before 34 and 35. All right? When he had gone out, he said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And then you go uh, to 33. Yet a little while while I'm with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. And so he gives them this command to love immediately after he tells them that he's going to go and commit the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. It's interesting the way that that ties in, right? So in, he tells the disciples, you can't go with me. And he's not talking about when he goes to heaven. In John 8, 21, he tells the Jews that where he was going, they couldn't go. And here in chapter 13, what he's really saying is he's saying, I'm going to the cross and I have to go alone. You can't go to the cross with me. Only Jesus could go to the cross. Only Jesus could pay the penalty that satisfies the demands of justice. And so he says, I'm going to the cross to die for the sins of the world, and you can't go with me. And so right before he commands them to love, he references the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. It's amazing. In John chapter 15, verse 13, it says, Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. When was the last time you or I loved another believer to the point where we had to sacrifice something? All right? And I want you to think about what this means, okay? Because it's not a sacrifice if, it's not, if you're not giving up something that's valuable. If it's not something that's valuable, it's not a sacrifice. And so uh, when's the last time that we had to sacrifice something for another believer What's interesting is as I was considering this, I thought, you know what? Jesus did. He gave everything on the cross, but do you know that's not the first time he gave everything? He gave up everything when he left heaven to come here. And so he starts in this Christmas season when we celebrate the birth of our Savior. He gives up everything. He gives up perfection. He gives up being the, in the presence of God the Father, sitting on, to, to, to his right hand being in his presence, being in perfection, being not around sin or death or anything at all, and leaves perfection to come here and live with our hot mess. That's crazy. He sacrificed everything when he came down. He sacrificed everything again when he died. His life was marked by that. His life was marked by the way that he loved sacrificially for others. It was a love that was selfless and not selfish. 
Another way that we can see how he loved his disciples was he loved them by serving them. You see, within hours of whenever he makes this command, within hours, even in the same chapter in the book of John, he washes the disciples' feet and he serves them. See, Jesus took this task that was meant for the lowest of the lows and he did it himself. He washed the feet of the faithful and the unfaithful. And while Jesus explains a a little bit later a spiritual significance behind it, the physical act was one that was degrading. And the people that usually did that task were of low status in society. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave up everything to come and serve wretches like me. That's crazy. This love that he has for us is radical. That the king of the universe would want to serve you and me. And so he serves them. Another element to this, how did he love them? Was he loved them freely without them earning it? You see, this love was given, not earned. In Romans 5, 8, it says, God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was no prerequisite. There was nothing uh, that we needed to do to earn this love. As a matter of fact, um, while you were in your hot mess, which while I was in my hot mess is when he came. That's when he died for us. He didn't say, I need you to clean up everything in your life, which is a common misconception and something that people will say to us all the time when we try to share the gospel. Well, I got to get this lined up first, or I got to straighten this out, or whatever. Jesus didn't say that. The Word of God doesn't say you have to do that first. It doesn't say you have to do that first before you can come to Him for salvation. It doesn't say you have to do that first before you start being the recipient of His love. There was nothing there. He met us where we were in our sin. He met the disciples right where they were. No matter what they were doing, where they were at, when he calls them, he just says, here, come follow me. That, that literally was the prerequisite. It was based, you just got to be willing to give things up. It wasn't, you got to clean all the sin out, because that's his job. That's the job of the Spirit to work in us to do that. And so let's be clear here. God loves people, and God loves all people freely, but... There are some that will use that as a license to sin. And God's love is not a license to sin. But it is a motive to obey. It's not a license to sin, but it's a motive to obey. That's what we're called to do. In 1 John 4, 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. Did you catch that? He, lo- he just loved. The Bible tells us that, that our salvation isn't through works so that no man can boast. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn his love. But the even better news, at least in my eyes, is that there's nothing that we can do to be separated from his love, which is what Romans 8.39 tells us. And that's encouraging. Here's another element, and this one may, may, may offend or hurt some feelings, and I'm okay with that. How did Jesus love them? By prioritizing intentional time. See, Jesus was intentional about the time that he had with the disciples. And so if we're called to love as Jesus loved, we need to be intentional about the time we have with one another. We need to be intentional not just in what happens during that time, but in the fact that we need to be 
prioritizing having that time to begin with. We are called to do so. The love we're to imitate is one that involves us prioritizing intentional time together. See, Jesus gave them both quantity time and quality time. He didn't give them leftovers. Right? It wasn't the end of the day. Jesus has been preaching and teaching and speaking for 14 hours, and now he's got to spend time with the disciples when he's wiped out. It wasn't like the leftovers, right? Like for you and I, sometimes we give our leftover time. And here's what I mean by that. We say, well... As long as I don't have this going on, as long as it doesn't interfere with this sport that my kid plays, as long as it doesn't interfere with uh, this TV show that uh, I have that I watch religiously at 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night, as long as it doesn't, do you catch the point there? And so we sometimes offer our leftover time. We plan out our entire days. We do everything uh, that we feel like we have to do, whether it's work or whatever the case is. And then by the, when the time the end of the day gets here, then we're finally like, oh yeah, I haven't, I haven't really talked to any other believers today. I haven't spent time with Jesus today. We offer the leftovers. Jesus never offered his disciples the leftovers. He gave them priority. And we need to prioritize being together as believers. Consider the current situation in this passage for Jesus. He knows he's dying the next day. If you knew you were going to die the next day, how would you spend your last night? I'm not sure I know the answer to that question for myself. But how would you spend your, your last night? Out of all the things Jesus could be doing, right? Because we create like bucket lists and we're like, well, might as well get all these cool things done that I want to do in my life since I've only got 24 hours left. Jesus doesn't look at that. Out of all the things that he could be doing during his last night, he's spending time with his disciples, and he's teaching them the things of most importance. He was prioritizing them all the way to the end. In the beginning, uh, earlier in chapter 13, Jesus says, he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. And Jesus continued to show that. And the last thing I want to hit on here, what did that love look like? And I know there's a ton of things, a ton of different ways that he loved on his disciples. Uh, was with unlimited and unmerited forgiveness. It was an element I want to hit on with y'all. And so, um, with unlimited, unmerited forgiveness. We were given a few examples here. And so, uh, specifically with Peter, and I know that's not a surprise, right? Um, Peter's, Peter's the one, right? So, uh, in Matthew 18... Peter asked Jesus how many times he should forgive his brother. Y'all remember that story? How many times? Should I forgive him up to seven times? Like that was a big deal. Like seven times was just this gigantic number in his mind. And what's Jesus' response? Seventy times seven. And his response, the intent isn't literally the answer to that math problem. All right? The answer Jesus is really offering isn't the answer to what 70 times 7 is. The answer that he's really offering to him is as often as it's needed. You forgive as many times as you need to, as it takes. In the passage we're looking at today, we can look in the verses that follow. After verses 35, in verses 36 to 38, Jesus has this conversation with Peter. And Jesus is like, you can't go where I'm going. Peter's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, you're going to deny me. 
and you're going to do it three times. And each time, Peter says, sorry. And so Peter's adamant that he won't, but he does. And then you go to John chapter 21, and we see that forgiveness. Peter is having this conversation with Jesus. He comes face to face with him, coming face to face with the one you've denied several times already. That's got to be almost an intimidating conversation to have, right? Uh, All right, I know I've wronged you. I know you're God, and now I'm looking at you face to face. That's got to be an intimidating conversation, but it's one that he has, and Jesus responds with grace and compassion. And here's what he does. What does Jesus do? Jesus asks him, do you love me? He says, you know I love you. What does Jesus do? Does he say, I don't believe you? No, that's not what he says. Does he say, uh, leave, get out of here? Does he write him off? He doesn't do any of those things. What he does is he gives him a task in the kingdom. He says, then keep serving me. He gives him a task and tells him to keep serving him. See, forgiveness and repentance are most effective when they're accompanied by action. Peter was willing to do the action, and Jesus was willing to give him the assignment. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so these are just a few ways that disciples experience the love of Jesus when it says, The new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. But he's also shown them love by speaking kindly to them, by concerning himself with their welfare, by instructing them and counseling them, by praying with them and praying for them, by vindicating them when they were accused and publicly claiming them to be closer and dearer to him than his own mother, brother, or sister. He reproved them for what was amiss when they made mistakes, but he compassionately bore with their failings. He showed his love to them in a lot of ways. And so when this command is given to love as Jesus loved, he's commanding us to love one another in a radical way. In a radically different way. To love one another in a way that doesn't look like any love we've ever seen before. So why is this command, and more importantly, why is our obedience to this command significant? Significant because love is the distinguishing mark of followers of Jesus. That's verse 35. So in verse 35, here's what it says. By this, all people will know. This, meaning your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the distinguishing mark of the followers of Jesus. It's the distinguishing mark of the church. You see, for three years, if someone wanted to know who was a disciple of Jesus, they looked at who followed him around, right? So the previous three years, if they wanted to know who was a follower of Jesus, all they had to do was look at the people that followed him around everywhere that he went. And they could tell, right? Um, With Jesus leaving, he lets them know, hey, when I'm gone, they're going to have to know by a different way. Because they're not going to physically watch you follow me around. There's going to have to be a different way for them to tell that you're my follower. And that's by how you love one another. The distinguishing mark of the church, the distinguishing mark of being a follower of Jesus is not whether someone is here every time the doors are open. It's not how much money someone puts in the offering plate. It's not whether you read your Bible every day. Even though all of those can be good things, they aren't the distinguishing mark. Love is. 
What's interesting um, is that what typically happens is if you consider people that are non-believers, right, uh, they'll usually judge the church based on how we love or don't love non-believers, okay? Um, I think that's a pretty, pretty obvious statement. But here in this passage, Jesus actually gives non-believers the right to judge Christians based on how they love other Christians. And so when anybody outside the church looks within these walls or looks at the relationships that exist between the people that are a part of the body of Christ, they should see love. And that's what he gives them the opportunity to do. Not to judge that we aren't Christians, but that people won't know that we are Christians. See, there's a difference there. You can be a Christian. It's it's hard, and it's not ideal. Um, Well, let's just put it this way. You and I should never claim to be a Christian and nobody be able to tell. That's not what we're called to do. They should be able to tell. So when we air our dirty laundry... When they see us bickering all over social media about things, we look like we aren't Christians because of the way we interact with one another. And I know I'm not the only one in this room that sees that all over social media and all over other places. It's everywhere. When our brothers and sisters stand in need of help and we have an opportunity of being serviceable to them, when they differ in opinion, or practice from us, or are any ways rivals with or provoking to us, and we have an occasion to condescend and forgive. In such cases as this, it will be known whether we have this badge of love as Christ's disciples. I think churches oftentimes become really inward focused, and we kind of think, like, we're the only church that exists. Like Hazelwood Baptist Church. There aren't believers in any other church, only in this, this one right here. Come on now. Let's not be judgmental towards other churches and things of that nature. There are believers all over. And we're all part of the same family. We're called to love each other, even in our differences. There's a quote from Bonhoeffer uh, that was kind of caught me by surprise and a little bit punched me in the gut. When real love kicks in, we begin to find each other's oddities delightful. Oh, man, I got to look at all the differences and the craziness of everybody else. And when I really love them, they don't bother me so much. They don't bother me so much. And so it's a mark of us as a church. And so I want to wrap up this morning, all right? As we wrap up, um, we focused this morning on love for Advent. So here's all I want to do. I want to encourage you to remember how great God's love is and to reflect on how you've experienced the love of God in your own life. But with that encouragement comes the challenge. And the challenge is how can you and I better love one another like Jesus did? So I challenge you to consider those things. Both the positive, God's love, and really the other, it's all positive. You know what? God wants us to grow, right? And we should have a desire to grow as followers of his. How can we love one another better? Consider that. Uh, and God, let's, uh, let's pray together. And um, I pray that uh, we have, uh, we take this opportunity to really look at his word, to really consider our own hearts and to see what God would want to teach us. So if you guys would, let's bow with me. Uh, Lord God, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you 
not only told us to love, but showed us exactly what it looked like. And Lord, while we are called to love everyone, Lord, today I just want to ask that you'd help us to love one another as followers of Jesus even better than we already do. God, that you'd help us to prioritize time with one another, that you'd help us to forgive one another and not hold back or hold a grudge or hang on to something. As 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs. And so, God, I pray that we don't do that for one another. Lord, I pray today for those that don't have a relationship with you, Lord, that may have never experienced that love before. God, it's an amazing, great, and glorious love, and I pray that you would speak to their hearts today. For those of us that are followers of you, God, just help us to be thankful. God, reveal the way you love us in a different way today. God, help us to never get tired of speaking of how great you are and how amazing your love is and how great your sacrifice was for us on the cross. Lord, we just thank you and praise you for your word today. It's in your name I pray. Amen.